Amen. So you guys been enjoying Pendulum? Yeah. We've been learning a lot. I've learned that Doug and Ryan are far more intelligent than I ever once believed. And I'm proud of those two. It's been some great messages these past couple weeks. And I'm proud of us as a church tackling some giant theological conversations. In a world that just feeds us two options so often, and it feels like I have to choose this or that. And sometimes both options, you're like, well, I think there's something to both of them, but is there something to meet in the middle? Sometimes you're given two options and you go, are these my only two options? Is there something better than this? And we've been fighting as a church in these conversations to find that truth and that peace in the tension. And I'm proud of that. And I wanna keep pushing, keep the foot on the gas this week, talking about the pendulum of faith with a message titled Doubt and Dogma. Doubt and dogma on the pendulum of faith. Faith is defined for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, which means there's a difficult element to faith because it's not always seen. It's things that are hoped for. It requires faith, which is challenging. And with that comes doubts for all of us at times. Doubt meaning uncertainty, lack of conviction, not believing, not accepting. And if you grew up in church, then you were probably taught that doubt is a cuss word. Don't you dare have any doubts about God. Don't you dare have any doubts in your faith. And you just spent your whole life like, well, I do have some real questions, but I guess I just gotta grab this thing and get it to the middle and just have faith right here in the middle of the pendulum. But if we're all honest, we have questions. We all put our faith in something, whether it's God or that there's no God. Maybe you put your faith in yourself or in other people. You put your faith in things, but at times it's things hoped for, things not yet seen, and so that comes with doubt. Now, on the other side of the pendulum is dogma. And when I hear dogma, I think of arrogant certainty. Carrie's definition's like this. Any belief held unquestionably and with undefended certainty. It's applied to strong belief which its adherents are not willing to discuss rationally or to hear another opinion. A principle or opinion laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. This just is what it is and there's no room to talk about it. Now, when I hear that term as a person of faith, I tend to think of the dogmatic atheist who says it's absolutely ridiculous to have faith in anything beyond this world. An atheist named George Smith, he said, reason and faith are opposites, two mutually exclusive terms. There's no reconciliation or common ground. Faith is belief without or in spite of reason. Just an absolute dogmatic statement. There's just no place for faith and reason to meet. And maybe that's because he's met dogmatic Christians who weren't willing to go to a place of conversation, who had no defense for faith and just simply said, it is just the way it is. There's no question about it. We find that faith and reason actually can meet. W. Bingham Hunter would counter what he said, saying faith is actually a rational response to the evidence of God's self-revelation in nature, human history, the scriptures, and his resurrected son. And on this big pendulum of faith, does God exist? Is he there? We've talked about this these past couple weeks, and I want to triple down on some of this because I just love this stuff. There's a cosmologist, Alan Sandage, who won astronomy's version of the Nobel Prize, and he concluded that God is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Sir Fred Hoyle was a man who devised the steady state theory of the universe, and his hope in this theory was that he could avoid the existence of God, but he eventually surrendered to there having to be an intelligent designer behind the universe because of his research, not in spite of it. Robert Jastrow, an agnostic, the founder of the Goddard Space Institute, concluded that the Big Bang points to God, as Ryan said two weeks ago. Authors of a book called Evolution from Space, two authors wrote a book, one of them being a Buddhist, which is a non-theistic, non-God-believing religion, and one being a skeptical astronomer. And in their research, they concluded that the mathematical impossibility of just the protein formation within creation is so astronomical that it's impossible to say there isn't a transcendent being beyond this. There's a book called One World that points to the precision and contingencies in the earliest picoseconds of the world, the smallest increment of time, the most critical beginning of the universe. And if you take the early picoseconds of the expansion and contraction rate of the universe, the exactitude was so perfect, the margin of error so minuscule that one slight number off and the universe would have collapsed in on itself. This is the kind of precision and exactitude it took. It would be like taking a square inch object and hurling it across the universe 20 billion light years away and hitting a bullseye. You guys aren't impressed. Here's a fun one. <laughs> if the properties of gravity were altered by the most minuscule fraction, the small number of one over 10 to the 40th power, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be able to survive. 
Now that number is like unfathomable. So here's how it's been illustrated. If you took dimes, do you guys remember these? <laughs> we used to have physical currency and these were 10 cents. Well, they still are worth 10 cents, just nobody has them. But if you were to take dimes and cover the continent of North America, so Central America into Mexico, the US, Canada, Greenland, cover it all in dimes, and then stack those dimes to the moon, and then do that on a billion North Americas, it's an unfathomable amount of dimes, okay? If you were to have marked one of those, just one, in that massive, unfathomable sea of dimes, and you blindfolded a friend and told them to go out into that and go pick one dime in their journey if they finally bent down and picked one up and it happened to be the one you had marked. That is, that exactitude, ten, one in 10 to the 40th power, the odds. If our gravity was off by just that tiny amount, we wouldn't be able to exist while this planet spins and orbits around the sun in this ever-expanding universe. And you right here can keep that dime and you'll never forget that. <laughs> We're a very generous church. <laughs> These kinds of things have led a guy like Robert Griffiths, who's a mathematician scientist, he said, if we need an atheist for a debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Frank Turek and Norman Geisler, they wrote this book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And they talk about all the reasons that point to the existence of God, that there actually is plenty of defense. The beginning of the universe, the design of the universe, the laws of nature, the genetic code, life and procreation, consciousness and free will, intelligence and reason, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, proven, the validity of the resurrection, objective morality, all these things to say actually faith and reason can not only meet, but I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It was objective morality that led C.S. Lewis, I have his signature classics here, highly recommend. C.S. Lewis was an atheist who said he was dragged into the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. It was objective morality. He had constantly questioned how there could be a God in light of the injustice he saw, but he said, if there's injustice, then there must be justice. And where does that come from in me? Right, because if you assume evil, you must assume good. Okay, if you assume good, you must assume a moral law. And if you assume a moral law, you must assume a moral law giver. But if there's no moral law giver, then there's no moral law, then there's no good and there's no evil. And who are you to tell anyone what they do is right or wrong and how they treat another human being? So the argument of a naturalist falls flat because you'll argue against God by putting value on a human while there only can be intrinsic value in a human if someone placed it there but you're saying this whole thing is a meaningless accident. For some people, it's just been on this pendulum of, of doubt. It's been just the concept of love, the supreme ethic of all of humanity, the place where the peak of intellectual and emotional alignment come together, where this intrinsic value is on human beings. Turek says, love is a metaphysical notion that doesn't come from science or math. It's a transcendent notion of our greatest need. For some people, it's been simply holding their child for the first time going, I don't know why I love this little alien. I can't explain it. Where does that come from in me? The hedonists like Oscar Wilde, spending their whole life seeking pleasure no matter the cost to another human being, at some point comes to a place of guilt, maybe shame, seeing abuse, ways that people have been mistreated for their pleasure, and asking the question, where does that value come from, realizing that every human being is deserving of love and has value? Love that was assigned to us, value that was assigned to us. And so maybe in this conversation on this giant pendulum, maybe it's science, study of the universe, it's logic, it's reason, it's morality, it's love, something maybe for you that has met you in your doubts and brought you to faith in God. Here's how it worked for me. As a young adult, I had a lot of doubts when it came to faith. I didn't have a relationship with God. And my doubts weren't so much about his existence. My doubts were that he would want anything to do with me. There's no way that God wants me on his team at this point. I've done everything I wasn't supposed to do. And so I swung over and started to create my own dogma that I knew how God worked, that he only wanted the good kids in class, the suck-ups, that he couldn't possibly want somebody like me and some of us, it was just too late until I finally opened up to hear the gospel and experience the grace of Jesus where he met me 
and my faith sparked, my doubts met by his grace, my dogma diffused by his grace, and I was met with faith. And my faith sparked, and I thought, this is great, now I kind of have it all figured out. But then new questions crept in. You zoom into the pendulum of, of having faith and trying to walk in a relationship with God, and there's still questions. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. My whole life is founded on that, but it still takes faith. I believe that. And the danger is when we start to become dogmatic, what you can begin to do is start to decide for God. Speak for God. Try to get his narrative to fit around yours. You marry your politics and your opinions to your faith and try to make it all fit together. And eventually you start to be speaking for him and answering questions that you don't know the answer to. If doubt is the place where we aren't sure that God knows best, then dogma is where we become sure that we know best, even better than him. If doubt is where all you have are questions and questions start to become your weapons, dogma is where all you think you have are answers and you fear questions. They're your greatest enemy because you know deep down that you don't have all the answers and you can swing back and forth between those two. Dogma can be a protective measure for us against our doubt to not have to acknowledge that we have questions we don't know the answer to. For a lot of us, I think because of the fear of having doubts or maybe starting to believe that we know best, our faith becomes like a house of cards. It's built on all these things that have to be true under my paradigm, my understanding, but then somebody comes with a question, there's something in the Bible that I don't understand, there's a life experience I don't have the words for, and this whole faith thing can come crumbling down and swing over to doubt. And the reality is that God wasn't wrong, you were, because your faith ended up being in yourself. But it's hard to live in the gray area of faith, isn't it? It's hard as a human being. The disciples, they struggled with this. They started walking with Jesus, but they had some questions about how he went about things. This guy's telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Like, who is this man? They had some doubts about how he was doing things. And he, they walked with him. They heard him speak. They saw him do miracles. And the longer they spent with him, they started to build faith. But then they swung over and started to build their own dogma of this is how Jesus is supposed to do things which was revealed when he was arrested. Because they all went, hold on a second. This isn't what was supposed to happen. This is not our narrative. You're not supposed to be in chains right now. You're supposed to be overthrowing Rome and getting us the head table on earth. You're supposed to take over the world now. Jesus gets arrested and they go, you know what? Maybe, Jesus, maybe you're not who we thought you were. In doubt, and it's not until the resurrected Jesus comes and meets them, they experience him that they come to faith in him, to trusting him. The error we make is we start to make, try to make God fit to our narrative. But you're supposed to cling to his. You may have heard of Billy Graham, probably a lot of you have. Billy Graham was one of the greatest evangelists to ever live. When Billy was in his early 30s, he was an up and coming preacher starting to get opportunities to speak and he had a friend, Charles Templeton, who was in the very same boat, an up and coming preacher. But Templeton was plagued by doubts. He had a lot of questions about God, about scripture, and he started poking Billy with those questions. And he told Billy Graham, your faith is too simple as he was walking away from his. And Billy was grappling with questions. And he said this, I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken. At last, the Holy Spirit freed me to say it. Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts and I will believe this is your word. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. He set that resolve and then went on to lead hundreds of thousands of people to meet Jesus through his preaching. Templeton, on the other hand, walked away. Spent the rest of his life speaking against God. And in this great book, The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, which I highly recommend, fed a lot of this sermon, he tells the story of those two and then he goes towards the end of Templeton's life to meet with him and interview him. And they talk about his journey and his walking away from faith and what is revealed is that at the root of Templeton walking away, the root of his doubt, why he left his faith, it wasn't logic, it wasn't reason, it wasn't science, it was pain. Pain. And that's what I wanna talk about today. 
I think beneath all the questions and debates, what lies at the heart of so many skeptics is not logic or reason, it's pain. And we don't know what to do with it. Pain is called the question mark turned like a fish hook in the human heart. How could God allow pain and suffering if he's good? The skeptic says, it's not science that's led me to doubt the purpose of God, it's the state of this world. For so many in intellectual debates about God's existence trying to disprove him, I don't know if the goal is actually to disprove him. I think it's that so many are angry at him because they're in pain and he let it happen and they don't know what to do with that. I think of my late grandfather who was a brilliant college professor and a staunch atheist. And with all the intellect that he had, what lie at the root of his inability to put his faith in God was pain from his childhood torment in his life, losing his wife, that he couldn't reconcile with God. Pain can lead us into doubt that eventually leads us to walk away from our faith and create a whole new set of dogma that he can't possibly be good or even exist. Now, there are rational arguments for why there is pain and suffering in this world in light of a good God. We've talked about some of this the last two weeks. If love is the supreme ethic of humanity, and freedom is indispensable to love. Choice has to be a part of it. If God's supreme goal is for us to love him and to love each other, then for him to violate our free will would be to violate what is necessary for love to exist. Here's a great quote. Every time you use force to prevent evil, you take away freedom. You prevent all evil, then you must remove all freedom and reduce people to puppets, which means they would then lack the ability to freely choose love. You may end up creating a world of precision that an engineer might like, maybe, and I don't know why they don't think engineers would care about love. No offense if you are one. But one thing's for sure, you'll lose the kind of world that a father would want. When you ask why doesn't God stop this, you are asking for something other than humanity with the freedom of will. I hate when my two sons feel pain, but I don't wish we'd never had them. Love demands freedom, which demands choice, which has led to pain and suffering. And we can talk about, we're complicit in this. As human beings, we chose to walk away from God and we continue to and it causes more and more pain and suffering in the world. We can blame the devil. He's the one who messed this whole thing up. But if we're all honest, at the root of it, our real question still remains with God because he's the one who's all powerful. We wanna go talk to him. We have to grapple with this conversation with him on the pendulum of faith in conversation because this is personal, not theoretical. Pain is personal to all of us. There's not a person in this room who doesn't know it. So what does God have to say about it? And I would recommend going to this book, above all others. And within this, that question generally leads to the book of Job. You're the only person to ever cheer for that. <laughs> when you read the book of Job, you feel like you're suffering too. When is this conversation gonna ever end? It's a bizarre, bizarre story. It's hard to grapple with. Here's how it starts. This righteous man, Job, who's undeserving of bad in his life, all of a sudden starts suffering tremendously and God allows it to happen. He lets the devil wreak havoc on his life. And Job has this incredible declaration of faith in chapter one. Verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What a statement of faith as he is losing all his children, all of his estate, everything. His wife is still there and she says, curse God and die. And she's grieving. I made the joke last service that it seems like part of his suffering is that she's still there and everyone was upset with me. <laughs> she's just not making things better. That's all I'm saying. And Job says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? What an incredible statement of faith. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? We can make fun of Job's wife, but her response is what most of us would say. Forget it. So this man of faith, who's now suffering, like he's physically in agony. His boils covering his body. He's emotionally suffering. He sits down, and then three of his friends join him. And they sit in silence for seven days and seven nights which you realize as you start to keep reading that it's the only thing that his friends do right is keep their mouths shut. 
They look at his suffering and the magnitude of it and they just don't say anything for seven days and seven nights. But once Job opens his mouth with some of his struggles, his doubts, his questions, they're like Black Friday shoppers. They've just been waiting for that door to open so they can get in there. And they start bringing to Job in his doubts their dogma. Their character is revealed and their dogma is revealed and their dogma is really based in the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking. And it's gonna sound familiar to you because it sounds a whole lot like karma. If you are wise and you are good, then good and blessing will come to you. If you are sinful and you are evil, then disaster and punishment are due to you. And it gridlocks into this back and forth of doubt and dogma because we know that Job is righteous. He didn't do anything to deserve this. But their dogma says, well, he has to have. And what they do is they put these on They walk into this debate, onto this pendulum, and start to referee the sovereignty of God. We know what to do. We know what to say. We know how this all works. And Job is over here, and it's not even like this pendulum swinging. He's holding the weight of this thing with his questions, his pain, his suffering, going, why is this happening to me? It's crushing him. At one point, he says, I wish I'd never been born. And here come his friends. And they think they can hold the weight of this thing. Eliphaz comes up. You know what, Job, if you're righteous, you should be fine. You just gotta let go and let God, man. And Job's over here like, thanks, that's so helpful. Look at me right now. Look at what I'm going through. Can you explain this to me? If someone can explain why I deserve this, and I'll listen. Here comes Bill Dad. Calls Job a windbag at one point. Tells him that he's speaking nonsense. He tells him at one point, your kids deserved what happened to them because they were clearly evil. Just learn from people before you, Job. Figure out how to go to God and make this right. And Job's over here getting crushed. How am I gonna go to God and make this right? He cries out at times, I wish I had a mediator, an advocate, somebody to help me here. This is a heavy weight on my shoulders. Here comes Zophar the worst of the friends. You know what, Job? You've only gotten half of what you deserve. They start heaping shame on him. At one point, they start just making up hypotheticals of here's maybe what Job did to deserve this whole thing. Speculating about him, trying to silence him, telling him to shut up. Well, he's over here just getting absolutely crushed by the weight of his pain and suffering with no one to help him. Sitting in pain, on this pendulum, and nothing is moving. Scripture says that if I speak not in love, I sound like a clanging cymbal. Talk about clanging cymbals. Job's friends. He continues to be driven deeper into his doubt and his pain as his friend dig in their dogmatic heels. And nothing is happening. Nothing's being helped. Nothing's moving. There's a cartoon I love that this guy says, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. And the frog that's sitting with him says, what's stopping you? And he says, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. Dogma, as these friends exemplify, allows us to sit up in our ivory towers and judge a world that we are doing nothing to help. And doubt can lead us to places of apathy and meaninglessness and railing against a world and a God that we have completely detached from, no longer doing anything within as well. And it can swing back and forth and back and forth. In the story of Job, there's a secondary lesson for us on being the friend who's sitting with somebody in pain. When my wife and I were going through a miscarriage, there was a day where I went golfing with three of my buddies, just needed a day out. And I was so thankful that day that my three friends were not Job's three friends. My buddy Matt was there and he checked in on me, asked how we were doing, was willing to talk or not talk. Doug was there and for years and years I've known that Doug and Ryan will have my back. If I need to talk, let's talk. If I need to not talk, let's play golf. My buddy Tyler was there and sadly, unfortunately, he could relate deeply to my pain. Him and his wife have gone through multiple miscarriages so we were able to just share how we were doing, how it felt the grappling that was going on. And I didn't want my friends that day to bring me an answer or silver lining. I didn't need them to, really didn't want them to, and thankfully they didn't. 
I was just really, really thankful that they were in the cart with me, that they were there with me, present. Like Doug said last week, sometimes the best answer is, I don't know, but I'm here with you. I can sit with you. I'll just be with you. I see in this story that presence speaks louder than answers. Presence speaks louder than answers, and we see that in the climax of the story when God shows up. In their dogma, these guys would have said, God doesn't show up, he doesn't come to you, you gotta go figure out your way to make it to him. And he counters that and he shows up and approaches Job. And he answers Job's question with 64 of his own. And they all start from the first question, root from the first question, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? He takes Job on this tour, talking about creation and the star and the skies and the sun, light and dark, weather, animals, beasts of folklore that he could just hold in his hand. Job gets to see the intricacy and the complexity and the majesty of creation. As God asks him, are you gonna put me on trial? Do you think that you know that you can do this better than I can? Is this pendulum helping you? Is this crushing you? Your friends with their dogma who think that they can hold this up, think that they can hold the weight of all of my sovereignty and all the questions that come with me, do you want to hold this weight, Job, because you're not sure if I am? Or do you want to put it down? And do you want to let me be God? Do you want to take that jersey off? It's hard to wear it. You're not meant to wear it. You're not meant to bear that weight. Do you want to let me be God and sit down and talk with me? And in his presence, Job has this amazing response. In the last chapter. He says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He humbles himself and repents, which I find remarkable because God doesn't answer his question. The end of the book is somewhat satisfying because God kind of rebukes the friends and then he tells them, hey, Job's gonna pray for you and I'm gonna listen to his prayer and I'm not gonna give you what you deserve for how you've just treated him. He counters their dogma. You're not gonna get what you deserve. You're gonna get grace from me. And Job's life is restored and then some, not because Job earned it from God, but because God has grace on him. This whole story, you think it's the story of justice and answers, right? Job never doubts God's existence. He doubts his purpose. He doubts his justice. So we think this is gonna be the story of answers and justice, but it turns out to be a story of presence and grace. From the case for faith, God says to Job, who are you? Are you God? Did you write this script? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And Job realizes the answer is no. And then he's satisfied. Why? Because he sees God. God doesn't write him a book. He could have written the best book on the problem of evil ever written. Instead, he shows himself to Job. What ends Job's questions? God's presence. Presence speaks louder than answers. He gets a taste of eternity of who God is, and he says, I can live here. I can live in the gray area of faith and let you be God. And speaking of the presence of God among us takes us to Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about this? This question of pain and suffering. Maybe the story that I think has spoken most to me is the story of John the Baptist when it comes to this question. John the Baptist lived an incredibly difficult life, foregoing all of the pleasures and normal things that people get to enjoy on this earth, living in the wilderness simply to prepare the way for the Messiah. Calling Israel to repentance, baptizing people, and one day he's baptizing people and Jesus shows up, who by the way is his cousin, and he gets to baptize the Messiah. He gets to experience the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in one moment. As the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and the voice of the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son, this is him. And then Jesus goes out and his ministry begins and it's finally time that John's gonna catch his big break, right? This faithful man, long-suffering. But then he's arrested to be executed. And some questions start for him as he sits in his prison cell. Some doubt creeps in. 
If you've ever felt guilty about having some doubts, just know that John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest, also did. So he sends some visitors, some friends of his, to Jesus with a question. It says in Matthew 11, starting in verse one, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Hey Jesus, are you the Messiah? Because it sure doesn't look like it from my prison cell right now. Are you him or should we wait for somebody else? And Jesus responds to them like this. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. There's evidence all around you for me to say I'm him. I'm him. And then Jesus ends with the most mysterious line that has become life-changing for me. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed are you if you're not offended with me. There's this book that unpacks that question from this story, The Prisoner in the Third Cell by Gene Edwards, which I would call a classic. And it's based out of that interaction, John going to his execution, and he asked the question, will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? He asks, shall we scorn that God has revealed so little concerning his ways or rejoice that he has revealed so much? There's a, a part where he creatively depicts Jesus thinking about John, his cousin, going to be executed. John, your pain is great, I feel it. Tonight you so desperately need to understand me, to fathom my ways, to peer into the riddle of my sovereignty. Your heart is breaking, but John, you are not the first to have this need. You are but one in a long train of humankind stretching across all the centuries of men who have called out to me with questions and doubt. You are but one voice among so many who wonder and who agonize over my ways. If there's anyone I would explain all this to, John, it would be you. But blessed are you if you are not offended with me. In the conclusion of this book, Edwards writes, you are going to get to know your Lord by faith or you will not know him at all. Faith in him. Trust that is in him, not in his ways. The question is not why did this happen? Did he allow it? Did he not stop this? The question is, will you follow a God you do not understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? The invitation has never been to understand God. It's always been to know him. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right? Before that, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I'm gonna be really blunt with you guys to tell you how this is all gonna go so that you can have peace because in this world you will have trouble. You can have peace within it. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Pain is a part of this. Jesus is aware of that, acknowledges it, owns it. Pain is a part of this, but it's not forever. And often I think the answer that we get or give to our pain and suffering is, well, his ways just aren't our ways. And that's true. But it doesn't always feel helpful. How about this? Well, his ways are not our ways. He made our ways his when he came here and put on flesh and bone and suffered to save us. Not withholding suffering from himself. One skeptic asked, how could God possibly bear the pain and suffering of his children? And Peter Kreef responded, we can't imagine how God endures the pain of this world, but we can believe it. God does, in fact, weep over every sparrow and grieve over every evil and every suffering, right? Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, knowing he would raise their brother Lazarus from the grave. In this world, you will have trouble, and I'm not absent or distant from that. I feel it right here with you. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Resurrection is coming. The quote continues, so the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross is literally unimaginable. It's not just what you and I would have experienced in our own finite human agony, physical and mental, but all of the sufferings of the world were there. The answer to the question of how could God bear all that suffering is that he did. He did bear it all. You talk about trust, faith, Corey Ten Boom from a Nazi death camp, talk about taking heart. 
She said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And many of us as Christians, we're trying so hard in this conversation to get God off the hook for suffering, but God didn't try to get himself off the hook. He put himself on the hook, on the cross. From the case for faith, the answer to suffering is not an answer at all. It's the answerer. It's Jesus himself. It's not a bunch of words, it's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument, it's a person, the person. The answer to suffering cannot just be an abstract idea because this isn't an abstract issue, this is a person issue. It requires a personal response. The answer must be someone, not just something because the issue involves someone who is Jesus, who sits with us, was despised and rejected, killed by his own children, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Kreeft says he is gassed in Auschwitz, he is sneered in Soweto, mocked in Northern Ireland, enslaved in Sudan. He's the one we love to hate, yet he has chosen to return love. Every tear we shed becomes his tear. He may not wipe them all away yet, but he will. Jesus is the answer to Job's cry for help. He cries for a champion, for a mediator, for an advocate, for somebody to come and sit with him that actually can help him. Jesus will soon be executed just like his cousin John, something John couldn't have dreamed of. And Jesus will meet John in death so that they can live in eternity together forever. And I think the sad thing for so many of us is it's our pain that leads us to doubt or dogma that keeps us from a relationship with the answerer. It keeps us from Jesus. Templeton, Charles Templeton, that friend of Billy Graham, at the end of the conversation he had with Lee Strobel, they talked about all these big things and big topics of pain and suffering, and Strobel finally brought up Jesus to him. And the response of Templeton was shocking. He didn't refute Jesus or mock Jesus. He said, oh, Jesus, I adore him. Called him the most important human being to ever live. And as the conversation was concluding, he was emotional and it spilled out of him almost like he didn't want it to. He said, I miss him. I miss Jesus. He had run from him because he didn't understand. Shane Pruitt's a pastor who lost his young son this past week and I saw on the day he lost his son, he posted, difficult seasons and suffering is a good reason to run to the Lord, not from him. Don't run from Jesus because you don't understand. Run to him because he does. This could sound like such a cheap answer. It's just Jesus. Of course you guys say that. All you ever talk about is Jesus. Well, we do because he's the answerer. He is who we meet in the middle here. The answer to our doubt and dogma is trusting Jesus. And it might sound trite or theoretical if it were not for him coming here and suffering all of your suffering and all of mine himself. And then all of the stories of amazing people who have put their trust in Jesus through pain and suffering, like the Apostle Paul. If you were, in a, if you were a spectator watching Paul's life, you'd go, why are you still doing this faith thing? As soon as you walked into faith, things got way hard for you. Shipwrecks and being stoned and beaten everywhere you go. Why are you still trusting Jesus? Scottish theologian James S. Stewart says, it is the spectators, the people who are outside looking at tragedy from whose ranks the skeptics come. It is not those who are actually in the arena and who know suffering from the inside. Indeed, the fact is, it is the world's greatest sufferers who have produced the most shining examples of unconquerable faith. For most of us as human beings, our circumstances dictate our faith. Our faith is dictated by how we feel, by what's going on today. But that unconquerable faith of a man like Paul, his faith dictated his circumstances. His trust in Jesus dictated how he went about everything. He put his trust in Jesus before how he felt. And he was human, suffered greatly. He says, I had a thorn in my flesh. I was suffering. Three times I asked the Lord to heal me, and, and he didn't. God did not heal him. And what was his resolve? He said, I'll trust him. His grace is sufficient for me. Paul wrote in Romans 5, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. For him, hope was born out of suffering. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, but he saw that hope was born out of the suffering of Jesus. As Peter Kreef said, the worst tragedy in history brought about the most glorious event in history, which would be the cross and the resurrection. 
And if it happened there, if the ultimate evil can result in the ultimate good, it can happen elsewhere, even in our own individual lives. Here God lifts the curtain and lets us see it. Elsewhere he simply says, trust me. And Paul reaches the point where he doesn't see pain and suffering as his greatest fear or greatest enemy. He finds purpose within it. How can I let this grow me closer to Christ? C.S. Lewis was that staunch atheist dragged into the kingdom kicking and screaming by an argument of morality, but what lay at the bottom of his atheism, his unwillingness to go to God, was pain from losing his mom as a child, was fighting in World War I, seeing the atrocities of war. But eventually, as a man of faith, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, it wasn't his goal. He will use it if you'll trust him with it. C.S. Lewis breaks apart. You can read the problem of pain for a philosophical look at pain. You can read a grief observed as he grappled with losing his wife from a personal place of pain. There was a, a girl who was diagnosed with a really rare disease where she didn't feel pain, which sounds incredible. Until you step on a nail or you break a limb, something's wrong with your body and you have no idea because you don't feel pain. There's no indicator like that something is wrong. And her mom's prayer every single night was, let my daughter start to feel pain. There can be tremendous purpose if we allow Jesus in, if we trust him. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, starting in verse seven. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That word garbage from the Greek should be the SH word. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my old dogma, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This man of faith, listen to what he says. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Above all things, I wanna know Christ, and if the cross is one of the places that he is, then I will meet him there. What does the enemy do to somebody like that? What do you do to somebody with that kind of unconquerable faith who says pain and suffering? That's part of this, but I'm gonna take heart because Jesus has overcome the world, so I'll just let this lead me closer to him. I'll just cling to him. In 2 Corinthians 4, with that eternal perspective, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen in faith, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You don't get to call the pain and suffering of this world light and momentary unless you are in the very depths of it and you know that an eternity without it awaits. Jesus said, take heart for I have overcome the world. Paul says we do not lose heart. We continue to take heart, to set our eyes on trusting him, on faith in him, our suffering savior. Do you take heart? Do you take heart in your faith, in trusting Jesus, in meeting him at the cross? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? Yes, in pain and suffering. Let me flip that question for some of you and ask this. Will you follow a God who doesn't live up to your expectations when he gives you grace and mercy and blessing and goodness and you know you don't deserve it? So many people I meet with, life's been hard, there's been pain, there's been suffering, and so when anything good creeps into their life, they're just like, I don't trust it. I'm just gonna wait until the rug gets pulled out from under me. It's always too good to be true. And if somebody doesn't come pull that rug out from under me, I'll just pull it out from under myself and self-sabotage because I can't actually accept goodness and grace in my life. Will you follow a God who doesn't live up to your expectations when he pours joy and hope and peace and love and blessing into your life, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you? Will you follow a God who doesn't live up to your expectations? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. I can suffer and I can thrive. If I'm with him, I'm good, because I trust him. I trust him more than myself. There's a story of a girl named Annie Johnson Flint who on paper had just a miserable life. She lost her parents young. 
She was taken in by a family, had to then be rehomed to a new family because she was living in terrible conditions. And they introduced her to faith. She gained a love for poetry. But it became hard to write poems because she developed arthritis at a young age that was twisting her body. And then cancer. Covered in boils, dying from cancer and arthritis, she penned this poem. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed or the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. You talk about unconquerable faith. There's a man, a famous man named Horatio Spafford, who lost most of his fortune in the Chicago fire in 1871, I think it was, and right around then, tragically, also lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And grieving as a family, he put his wife and four daughters on a boat to London to get away. And while they were on their voyage, their ship had a terrible collision and sunk. And he received word from London from his wife that said, saved alone, what shall I do? All four of their daughters had died at sea. So this man who's just lost five children set sail to go be with his wife in London. And as he was sailing, the captain called for him because he knew the story of his family and told him, this is the spot. We're passing over the spot where your daughters lay to give him a moment to observe. And this grieving father, this man of faith, penned these words may be familiar with. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest his blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I tell you stories like this. Not to play the comparison game. Not to make you think, well, if Horatio was fine losing five kids, then I should be fine with what I'm dealing with. Pain is not about comparison. It's personal to each of us. But to encourage you, to give you hope, to give you pictures of unconquerable faith, of trusting Jesus beyond our pain and our circumstances, to tell you that with Christ, we conquer not in spite of pain, but through pain. We conquer not in spite of pain, but through pain. When my wife and I were walking through that miscarriage, I stepped onto this pendulum with some questions. Why do I pray? You didn't answer my prayer. I don't understand this. And I'm, sure, I'm not sure there's an answer for this. But then I'd come over here and go, well, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I'm a man of faith. I need to just be strong. And this is a fallen world, so this is just the way it is, and I need to just be okay with that. But God, I'm watching my wife suffer right now. We're in pain right now. I don't get this. And I felt like finally Jesus said, hey, do you wanna, do you wanna set that down? Do you wanna come sit with me? I'm the friend you want to sit with you in your pain and suffering. I know the pain of losing a child. I've lost one here too. Will you come talk to me? Will you not run from me with your doubt and your dogma, but will you run to me? And as I did, I wrote this. If all there is is just a universe and thinking like if a couple representatives of the world came to me to try to give me answers for why this happened. If all there is is just a universe with some sort of control to it and it has dealt us this reality to deal with and then there's nothing more, then pardon me, I was in a place of pain, but screw your universe. 
If there's a God or gods who inflicted this and then sat back to watch us try to make our way out of it, I want nothing to do with them. But if there is a God who came into our mess and rather than sparing himself pain, absorbed all of mine, then I will speak with him. And if he is so powerful and loving that he can not only know my pain, but he will one day free us from all of it, then I will suffer with him and I will heal with him. I will run to him. I will not run from him. I will trust him. So many of us, I think, continue to live deeper and deeper into our pain because we will not let him in. We're mad at him. He can handle it. And he knows. My brother and his wife, after their own miscarriage, got tattoos that just say, Jesus knows. Because he does. I love the words of John Stott. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He talks about his own experience. I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings then become more manageable in light of his. Would you stand to your feet if you're able? I wanna just address a few groups in this room. To the wounded skeptic in here, it may be that your doubt and dogma are keeping you from the answerer. I would urge you today to run to him. I thought about Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Faith. That wasn't his first book. His first book was The Case for Christ. He was an atheist who said that people of faith had invented God as a pathetic way to deal with their fear of death. And so he set out to disprove Jesus because Jesus is the crux of our faith, the cross and resurrection, everything hinges on that. And he set out to disprove Jesus, but he couldn't. And he eventually surrendered to faith in Jesus, put his faith in Jesus, but he still had questions, which is why this book is here, the case for faith, more questions to come. But unknowingly, he did exactly what we should do is run first to Jesus and then bring our questions with and not wait for an answer to all these questions before we'll go to him, to run to the answerer. We may not get all the answers God has given us, delivered us something better, which is the answerer himself. His friend, J.P. Moreland, at least trouble, he told him every single issue isn't going to be resolved before we enter into a relationship with him. But the question is on balance, can you trust him? And he concluded, I can. And I would say the same thing because of the cross. You can. Trust him. Don't run from him, run to him. Jeremiah 29, 13, seek me and find me when you will seek me with all of your heart. Seek him. Take that jersey off. Put that weight down and run to him. Let him sit with you.